Father God, we come here this morning to remember all that you've done for us. And in the midst of that, Lord, we ask that you continue to do in a way that we cannot explain, the way that we cannot expect, the way that just blows us away. We ask that you just continue. Lord, we thank you for the things that you have done, and we are excited to see the things you are going to do amongst us, amongst this place, and amongst your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, all, all week as I've been preparing, um, I didn't think we were going to have nursery, so you're welcome. You can thank Pastor Jess for that. Uh, so, it, 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 look, you're going to get out early today. I thought we were going to have kids. Uh, but here's the warning, though. I did a wedding in Sacramento on Friday night, and uh, Friday we had all day to kind of sit around until the wedding happened, and so we went to Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby. I'm full of Jesus. <laughs> like... Uh, so I don't know how long this is going to take. You know, you go to the two most Christian places in the entire world outside of church. Maybe even more than church. I don't know. Um, so how many of you remember um, there's this little book series you may have heard of, um, Chronicles of Narnia? Anybody? Oh, oh, okay, good. So usually when I say that, no one's like, what? Not Narnia, though. There's this moment in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe where the kids just arrive in the Narnia and everything is just a buzz. Everything is going on. The two daughters of Eve, the two sons of Adam have come, and now everything is going to change. And, and the fox and the beaver and all these different animals, they have this kind of mantra about them. And the mantra goes like this, Aslan is on the move, right? It's like how they greet each other at, at, during this point. It's almost like when you look at like the first, the, uh, the first century church when they would say, peace be with you, or Jesus is Lord. This was the greeting they gave to show that everything was back on track. Aslan is on the move. Well, today in our intervention series, Jesus is taking a hard shift in the book of Luke. Like Luke has been talking about the ministry of Jesus and how they've been walking up and how everything has been going really good and the miracles and all this kind of stuff. And now everything is about to take a hard turn and Jesus is going to start heading toward Jerusalem. And that is on purpose, right? He is now, his, his goal is focused. He is moving toward, the scripture today takes place just a few days after what we call Transfiguration Sunday. Not on our calendar, but in theirs. So he has just seen Elijah. He has just seen Moses. He has just seen this whole tent come down. Everything is taking place. He is getting geared up to go. He's getting fired up. He does a few more miracles. And now he's headed toward Jerusalem, and he's got the same old issue that he's had from the beginning, and let's just face it, that every pastor has had from the beginning. His people. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're great people, most of you. Um, we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 9, today. And as we talk about the way that Jesus and God intervenes throughout this series, we've been talking about how intervention doesn't look like the way we want him to intervene sometimes. Sometimes it's exactly how we want him to intervene. But most of the time, his intervention is bigger than us. And at some point, we have to sit back and go, I'm kind of glad for that. I had a professor tell me one time that um, if we could figure out God, why would we worship him, right? If he was that easy, because I'm not the brightest guy in the room. Um, so if I could figure out God, we're all in trouble. So there's times that I'm glad that I can't figure out how he intervenes and why he intervenes in certain ways. We have this word called sovereignty, and we just trust God. But sometimes when it comes to intervention, that feels like a cop-out. 
right? Well, I just, whatever, the will of God, whatever. And so we don't, we don't always mean it. We just throw it up there because when someone's suffering, it's hard for us to accept that the will of God might be that he's not healed or she's not made better or whatever that be. And so when we're talking about intervention. We're talking about all these different ways that God intervenes, but he always intervenes. It's just not how we always wanted to be intervening. So as we hear this story, we get Jesus now who is going to head to Jerusalem. He's got options. He's got a map. You know, he's got uh, Peter's the navigator, and he's got the Apple Maps and their Honda Accord pulled up. Um, Y'all knew that, right? It says very clearly that they all came in one Accord. So it had navigation. Jesus sets it toward Jerusalem. They start rolling out. Yeah, so your faces, I have to, I, I learned a new term. This It's not just dad jokes, but there's pastor dad jokes too. And they're way worse, so buckle up. Um, they're headed toward Jerusalem, and Jesus says, we are going to, we're going to go through the heart of Samaria. We're not going to go around it like a good Jewish group would. We're going to go right through the heart of where people aren't going to welcome us and not going to like us, and we're going to do it, on, we're going to do it for a reason. And so Jesus begins this way in Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 51. This is a time approach for him to be taken up to heaven. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Which is what we do, right? If you're not welcome someplace, just... Call it down. Remember, though, these two were with Jesus at Transfiguration, so they just saw Elijah. They're remembering what Pastor Jess preached about when Elijah called fire down on the altar, and they're like, hey, we just saw Elijah. We can do this. We can call fire down. So they're, they're a little fired up. Hmm. There's another one of those pastor jokes. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And now there's like this, this hard, like, so th- there's this moment, and then Jesus says, okay, we're going to turn this into a teaching moment too. And he says, in verse 57, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say, say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So we have what seems almost like we have two different stories here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the assertion that they're really one story. And they're, they're one story that gets separated into two stories and it causes us to miss the point of the story. Right? So we have this moment where Jesus is going to go through Samaria, and as he's walking through, the disciples come back and say, hey, they were mean. They didn't welcome us at all. Let's burn it down. And Jesus says, no. What did I just get done telling you? Like literally two chapters before this. If you get to a place and they don't welcome you, dust the, dust, dust the sand off your feet and move on. Don't, don't waste your time. So what we're going to do is we're going to move on to another village. It's not that big a deal. But the fact that Jesus even went through Samaria is very important here because he's on his way to Jerusalem. It's not necessarily the shortest way. It's just the way he's going to go. Because remember, Luke is telling a story about a gospel that is for everyone 
and for any time. So he's trying to convey this idea that salvation is for all. So Jesus going through Samaria on this last trip back to Jerusalem is this one last effort to say this gospel is for everyone. It's for the entire world, not just Jerusalem. It's for all. So he goes through there with this idea of making that point. And then you have the disciples right on the heel of that, walking with Jesus. And these people coming up and throughout his entire ministry, right? What did he want? People to follow him. And this guy comes and says, I'll follow you. And Jesus goes, yeah, but it's going to be tough. I mean... You know the foxes. They don't have holes. <laughs> Birds don't have nests. You don't have any holes? No. no. It, there's no place for you. Basically what Jesus says is that that's great. But remember, we are going to be homeless for the rest of the time. But come on. Oh, uh, I don't know. And another guy says, I'll do it. I'll do it. And he says, oh, Jesus says, well, come on. And he says, well, but I gotta, first I got to go bury my dad. And Jesus says, He's already dead. Let the dead bury the dead. Next guy, uh, Jesus, uh, I'll, I'll follow you, I'll follow you. One thing after another, after another, after another. And so this, this particular scripture throughout all of time, in fact, I think I've preached this way before, is always used to convey to people how much investment it takes to be a disciple, how hard it is to be a disciple, the commitment to be a disciple, right? To follow Jesus means that you have to give up everything you like and then follow Jesus. You, you don't get to have uh, any fun things. You have to give all those up and then be a disciple. And if you smile, then you're not doing it right. Like, you guys had it for the first couple songs. Don't you dare clap in church. People will think you're excited to be here. Right? I mean, it's, it's this, this mentality that we have that discipleship somehow means that we are to give up everything, including our own joy, and then follow Jesus and kind of be begrudgingly kicking the ground and walk into me and like, I'm stinking Jesus. I would have so much more fun if it wasn't for him. Always cramping my style, ruining my parties. And we somehow get this mentality that discipleship has to be hard. But where did we lose this idea that that Jesus came to bring this kind of joy and hope, that it shouldn't be that we begrudgingly do anything, but we live this way because we want to. This is where the whole monastic movement came from. This verse right here, these verses. This idea that we are to sell everything and move out into the wilderness. <laughs> you saw it attack me, didn't you? We have to move out in the wilderness, get rid of all of our stuff, and just make wine. And... and, and this thing takes place, but maybe we miss the point of making discipleship the hard thing, and, and, and all of a sudden we link it to the story that just happened before, and we get this new story that says, Jesus has set his eyes to Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus came for a purpose. This whole Emmanuel thing, this God with us, this, this idea that Jesus was born into our world wasn't by happenstance or accident, and Jesus was just kind of like trying to figure it out on the way. This was something that when God created in the garden, and he created male and female, and he created them in our image, and everything was good, and it was very good, and the fall took place, and after the fall, this, this red thread that we have through our scriptures of redemption, this, this God following his people throughout all of the Bible and all of time, trying to pull them back in, this story begins with Jesus knowing exactly what's going to take place. This idea that he has to come to live amongst the people so that they can see God face to face. There's no more oxen. There's no more goats. 
There's no more doves. Jesus says, those aren't what we're doing here. What we're doing is I want to show you what God is and you will see the Father through me. And so he shows up to be this living God amongst them and they're walking and now he's turned himself, his eyes to Jerusalem and he begins telling these stories about the fact that he's not going to come back with them after this Passover. He begins telling them about how he is going to die and raise again and they're getting very, very confused and this whole thing is taking place right on the heels of this idea that we have this cost of discipleship. And I think what the point of this story, it's not so much that, that we have to get rid of everything that makes us happy or everything that gets in the way, right? We, we, we tend to, we tend to and, and, and rightfully so in some cases, but we tend to make everything in our life an idol. If we spend five minutes on it, then it's an idol. And if we do this one thing, then it's an idol. But, but really, in, in a sense, what Jesus is saying is, what I want you to do is I want you to be single-minded. I, I want you to focus on where you're going and what you're doing. And as we do that, we're going to go through the parts of town that don't want us there. Because the mission is taking us to something bigger. And on this mission, what, it, what is it that we do? What, what are we doing? What are we trying to do? Jesus knew at this point, everything is turning toward that cross. Everything is turning toward Jerusalem. He knows very well that if he rides into Jerusalem saying the things that he's saying into the face of the religious establishment, into the face of the Romans, they're going to kill him. That's what they do. There was no mistake about that. He knew that he was taking a stand this time. This was it. This was the year. This was the Passover. Everything changed. And so as he's moving that direction, he goes into this place and he says, here's what I need from you. I don't think it was so much talking to the people that were coming up to him. I think he was showing his disciples, what I need from you is to have a mission. You need to be mission focused. You need to be, the idea has to be in front of you. This is the hardest thing in the world right now. I know not just for me. I mean, I, believe me, I know you're tired of meeting in this room. I'm tired of meeting in this room, especially when there's a giant room right behind Gibbons. He's like our bouncer. He won't let you in. The insurance company says no. There's this whole new place. And we, we so, I so want to be in there. I, I, I want to have this building ready to go and be this central hub for the kingdom of God to spread out of the center of the city. I want it so bad. My mission and my vision is so clear. And everything seems to make sense. And it's like somebody's telling me, yes, but remember... Um, your idea of discipleship, your idea of movement is not my idea of movement. And sometimes you have to hold on, uh, put on the brakes. I don't want to do that. Intervention sometimes is annoying. There are times when God intervenes and you just want to say, butt out. Like, we can do this just fine. Just give us the permits for crying out loud. Or better yet, let's just go back in time and pretend like the inspector never showed up and caught us. Yeah. Right? I mean, all, all this stuff that we're doing. We, we could easily plow through it. And I just keep wondering why it's not happening. There's got to be a reason why July 1st, or July 31st is going to, oh, July 1st, that would have been awesome. What, why? Why is this happening? And I have to, I have to, for my own sanity, let alone for my own theology, I have to stand back and go, there's a reason why this is delaying. There, there has to be, this intervention has, there's got to be a reason or else I just want to shake my fist and walk out. I just, I'll, I'll just go live in Lake Tahoe, sleep on the beach. 
I don't need this. <laughs> There's got to be a reason the intervention is taking place this way. And I think about the way that Jesus stopped at each of those people and gave them a command that one, according to the Old Testament, are very biblical. You're supposed to bury your father. That's one of your responsibilities as a son. You're supposed to be there to do that. That is the whole honor your mother and father. I know parents of young kids want to use that to raise your kids, but really that's a command for adult children to honor your adult parents. So that, that is one of the commands that you are to do to honor your mother and father by burying your father before you do anything else. That's the priority. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Not because he's trying to be disrespectful or trying to move on past the Old Testament, but because he's trying to say, we've got a mission here. We've got something we're doing. And so in the midst of this time, in the midst of the time that we are still in what is going to be a coffee shop one day and not a sanctuary, when we're still and we're frustrated and we're wondering, is this ever going to end? And I know some of you walk in and you, you, every, every, you walk in and, oh, the, the insulation is still there. Oh, good. I was hoping we wouldn't have a wall there. It would be terrible. We look and we want, we, we want the change. We want the happening. And right now, let me tell you, it's killing me right now because before we would do little changes and we get to see everything every week kind of happen. But now it's like, well, if the planning commission doesn't give us a special use permit, we have to sell the building. I don't want to spend any more money and do it. <laughs> so now we're just kind of in this crazy holding pattern of intervention, and I don't like it. But we need to keep our eye on what we're doing. We need to stay focused on what's going on. I heard a saying one time. It was on a, pastor, a pastor's wall. It's really funny. Uh, I don't know if I just like, uh, reference Steve a lot or only when he's here, but uh, <laughs> he had a sign that said, what it was, uh, yeah, keep the main thing the main thing. Right? And that's what Jesus is saying here right now. Let's not get distracted by the nonsense. Let, 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 we, we are on the way to Jerusalem. So if people want to follow us, fine, follow me. But here's the deal. It's not going to be comfortable. This is three and a half years into his ministry now. We're, we're almost there. We're almost at Jerusalem. Everybody has heard about these amazing things. In fact, the reason why Samaria probably kicked him out is because he wouldn't stop and do a magic show. They wanted to see the miracles. They wanted to see all this crazy stuff happen. And Jesus says, we're not doing that. And all of a sudden, well, then get out of here. All right, fine, we'll go. All these people, they, they want to be a part. Look, it is, it is really easy to want to be a part when everything is awesome, right? When kids' ministry is up and running and, and, and everything is smooth and, and, and we don't have to worry about who's going to do first Sunday in the nursery. It's easy to be a part of that. You know when it's hard to be a part? Right now. When we're like, September, we're going to launch this whole new thing, on, uh, a whole new thing. We'll call it a retro thing, right? We're going back to a Wednesday night family night where we're going to have kids stuff, and we're going to have nursery, and we're going to have adult classes. Who's going to teach him? I don't know. I have no idea. But, but we can't get distracted by, the, by, by this stuff. We have to stay focused. And what that looks like is going into Samaria, going into the places where you're not going to be wanted, not going to be looked at well, and you're going to say, here's what we're doing. We're moving to Jerusalem. And what we're going to do in Jerusalem is we are going to make sure this thing happens for the entire world. And that's the message. Jesus here is intervening for everyone. There isn't this little bit of intervention over here for Christians and a little bit of intervention over here for non-Christians. But it says in Scripture that the rain falls on the good and the evil. God intervenes everywhere. 
Some people call it coincidence. Some people acknowledge that he's intervening. It doesn't mean the intervention is any less. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean the intervention is less when, when we can explain it away, even. I, I've told this story about the young girl in biology class before that was talking about, she was doing a report, and she was talking about the splitting of the Red Sea and how, how that was a miracle. And the teacher goes, oh, you know, it's been proven that that time of year during the Red Sea, the, the waters do reside, and they probably just walked across the mud and not really that God parted the Red Sea. And the little girl goes, wow, all those Egyptians drowned in the mud? It doesn't matter how we like to explain things away. The fact is that God is going to intervene, and God is intervening. So here's what we can do. We can be on board with this idea that we are going to get behind it, we are going to push it, and we are going to go with it, we are going to get on board, we are going to go around, and we are going to make sure that we are here while we're here, and we are going to get the gospel preached, because this is what we're doing. We are not here to build this amazing shrine to Connected. That's not what this building's going to be. This building is going to be worked on from now until Jesus comes back. <laughs> Whether that's next week or 100 years from now. We are always going to be doing something here. But we're always going to be doing it in such a way that when Phineas Brzee, our founder of the Nazarene Church, said that he never wanted to finish a building because he wanted it to be just a little bit incomplete. So even the building represented the kingdom of God. Because I, I'll tell you what, I don't care how good you are. Even Joe isn't complete. Almost. There's still some. There's always going to be this thing that the, the, the deeper we get, the closer we get to Jesus, the more this, this revelation that's going to take place, this thing that's going to happen, this, this one more step he's asking us to take, all of these things. And so as we begin to move, we are setting our eyes toward Jerusalem. We are setting our eyes toward redemption. We are setting our eyes toward calling everyone back. And in the midst of that, the main thing is that we are going to take love and we are going to take hope and we are going to take it everywhere we go. And so the distractions that come up, the things that are asked, the things that, the, the things that happen, even this, this, this date, this January 31st, it just keeps playing over and over and over in my head after 5 July, January, yeah. I, can't you tell how much the date's rolling around my head? The 31st, we'll just go with that. The 31st is, is a major distraction for me. I, can't, I cannot stop thinking about what's going to happen at this thing. And I've already played it out. Uh, every scenario, I, I figured it out. Again, I don't need intervention. I've got it figured out, right? If they say no, if they come back and they say, we're not granting you the special use permit, you cannot have a church in that area. All right, well, then I guess we sell the buildings. And then we get our own show on HDTV called Church Flippers. <laughs> Some money maker, I'm telling you. We'll get we'll get uh, Chip and Joanna to come out here. It'll be a big it'll be a big hit. But you know what I'm having a hard time doing? Wrapping my head around if they say yes, which is what everything's pointing to, because I'm terrified of it. And so as these people came and said, "I want to follow you," and Jesus says, "Okay, but it's going to be tough." He didn't get distracted by their excuses. He just said, we're going. Get on board or don't get on board. If you got your excuses, then go, because we're moving now. We, we are headed toward a place that's going to be hard. And what I find absolutely incredible is that even through all of this, even through the calling of discipleship, even saying that we're focused on, on loving and, and making sure that the entire world hears this gift of salvation, even through all of that, what happens to the twelve? 
they vanished when it got tough. John was there. And of course, the women. Everyone else bolted. Even as Jesus says, we are going to focus down, we are going to bear down, we are headed towards something huge. And they were all ready for it, right? The whole talk's up to it. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. I would never, never betray you. Never would I do that. All of these conversations that are taking place. And Jesus never lost focus. In fact, all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, that Thursday night before it all went down, Jesus is so focused. He is so set on his goal that he is praying for hours upon hours in the middle of the night, so much so that all of his disciples fall asleep. He is so stricken by what's going on. He is giving everything he can to this mission. There is no distracting him from what's going on. He tries for just a second to say, God, if there's another way. I know the mission, but if there's another way, take it. But if not, I'll do it. He is so dialed in on what's going to happen that there's nothing that can distract him. It's unbelievable to me the fact that he is going to do this, not just for the people that are with him, not just for those that, that left him, but it is the Gospel of Luke that tells us that he was on that cross not just for the holy, but for the two people on the sides of him too. He was so focused on redemption that his plan was not going to be thwarted. So, in the midst of our distractions, in the midst of the stuff, in the midst of figuring out how the swamp cooler cannot make me freeze because I'm standing right in front of it, in the midst of all of that, we have got to stay focused on being the church. Not being this building, not being connected, not being anything, but being the church. So that as we get closer to this idea of what it's good, because what are we going to do when the distractions go away? They're not going to. So we've got to practice now on not letting the insulation bother us, not letting these things take place, not, not letting the fact that I have to mow the parking lot. <laughs> not letting those things be the things we focus on when we get here. This is the third week in a row that between Ben and I, we've screwed the coffee up. <laughs> if, I was, if, I was, if I was attending a church, that'd be a deal breaker. But we cannot let those things be the things that we walk out of here remembering. As the band comes back up, I want to leave you with this. There are so many times that we get to take amazing vacations or we go on amazing trips and they're just absolutely incredible. This, this wedding I did on Friday, I seriously felt like I was performing a wedding in a romantic comedy. The, the venue was incredible. There was limousines picking up guests at the hotel and driving them out to the venue. I mean, it was, they, they choreographed their first dance uh, the DJ somehow made everyone dance, even the Nazarene that was there. Uh, the, when there was a line dancing thing that took place out there, everybody lined. It, it was ridiculous. It was like I was, except for one thing. About midway through the reception, the toilet stopped working. 200 guests in this like ancient mansion. I mean, it was so elaborate. It was so crazy. And none of the toilets are flushing. It starts at the women's bathroom. All of a sudden, the toilets are clogging up. 
So then I try to go to the bathroom, and there's like four ladies standing in front of me like, wait, just because your line's long doesn't mean you get to jump over to our side. <laughs> and they said, no, no, the bathrooms are broken. 30 minutes later, the men's bathrooms, not flushing anymore. An absolutely perfect thing. And every time I talk about it, you know what I think of? The bathrooms didn't work. <laughs> Everything else was amazing, but the bathrooms didn't work. You, you can go on the, the, the craziest, most awesome vacation, and when you get back and somebody says, how was it? And you say, oh, it just rained <laughs> for 30 minutes one day. <laughs> but that's what you lead with? No, we have got to stay focused on the fact that Christ did not come to just give us a new mission to do. He came to be the mission for us to do. We do not celebrate this day because we have a Bible. We celebrate this day because of the resurrection. We celebrate the resurrection. We live in a resurrection time where Jesus did not just come and say, go and do. He came and did. And as we now live this way, we stay focused on what's going on. So that when we have the end of the day, we don't just talk about all the things that went wrong, but we talk about the potential of life that's around us. We don't just talk about those out there, the different ones, those that are always messing things up, those that are constantly passing laws we don't agree with, those people that don't even want Chick-fil-A. We, we, we we're not talking about them. We are now going to be with them and we're going to focus on it. That is the main thing, to make sure that everyone understands the resurrection was not just for us in this room. The resurrection was for all of humanity. And so as Jesus walks through Samaria and begins talking about these things, he's like, no, 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 you, we're focused on this, this idea that there is no us in them. There's not going to be. Regardless of what Facebook says, we cannot live in an us versus them mentality. We have got to live in an us mentality. So the main thing for us, it has been since day one, the main thing has always been that we exist to connect people with each other, with God, with each other. That's it. Those two things. And if both those two things aren't happening, then we reevaluate what we're doing. If our things that are connecting with each other are happening, but they're not connecting those people to God, then we need to figure that out again. But we want to constantly keep that main thing of connection, of relationship. It's why even in the midst of this, we still have three tables out there because there are people that get here early and that want the coffee that isn't made. But we need that time to connect with each other so that we can, we, we can push people in and just draw them into this connection with God in a new way. That is our main thing, and that is what we're going to keep doing regardless of the transition. Because I'm telling you, come August, it's going to be messy in here. It, I mean, but it'll be the best kind of mess you'll ever be a part of because it's going to be progr progress messy. But we're just going to keep focused on the main thing. We're going to keep talking about the hope that Jesus gives, the resurrection that is real, and the fact that we can be forgiven and be brand new creations. We're going to focus on the gospel through all of it. So I hope that you can dig in and be a part of focusing on the main thing. As our kids are off at NYC, as they're off to camp, as all this stuff is happening, that we just keep focusing on Jesus and the things he's going to do in this place and in this city. We're going to move into connecting time and kind of encourage you to, to move out into these stations in a way that is going to, to, to help you just dig in. Maybe it is a call to discipleship for you. Maybe you need to know that. But the call to discipleship is not just about giving everything up. It's keeping the main thing the main thing keeping focus on where you're going. So as Pastor Jess communicates to you the different stations, I just pray that you will find a way this morning to connect with God in a new way. Oh, you can be seated.
<laughs> Father God, we ask that you move this morning. We ask that in the midst of the stuff that we are seeing in our world right now, the confusion, the, the chaos, the sadness, we ask that you just be the thing that... Uh, that, that you be the light that we see, that you be the thing that we search for, that you be the thing that steadies us, that you be the rudder that steers us, that everything we do, it be that you are doing it through us. And that is how we begin to survive. That is how we live. It is how we do everything we need to do. Lord, we ask that you move in mighty ways and we give you permission to act through us Thank you for who you are, and thank you for your sovereignty, even in these confusing and horrible, horrible times. Lord, we pray for your love to just fall on this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, any of you guys campers? Like, camping? No? <laughs> Look, I, I know there's several of you that camp that are not raising your hands right now. This is the, this is the interactive part of church, Okay. <laughs> I, I, I kind of had uh, a strange epiphany over the past couple weeks. Uh, I went on a backpacking trip, and when you're backpacking, you basically have what you have in your backpack. There's nothing else that you get to carry with you, right? You don't. And so we got back from backpacking, and then we went on a car camping trip where we took the trailer, and I'm sitting up early in the morning, and I'm looking around going, I have everything I could possibly need right now. Like, it's so weird. Like, when I'm backpacking, I have a stove that's about this big and weighs like two and a half ounces. And that's how I cook everything. And I'm looking in our bear box. We've got like an iron skillet, an iron griddle, like all this stuff. And I'm like, this is really strange because the difference is between backpacking and camping in your trailer is the same amount of difference as camping in your trailer and living in your house. I mean, it, it just blew my mind. And I thought about the fact that how interesting it is that we even go camping. Like, I'm sure you've thought about this before. You've heard this before. Like, do you realize how much money we invest to be homeless? <laughs> like, we paid $35 a night at a campground to not have a home. When we have a perfectly good home that we could sleep in that has beds and everything. But we do this thing, and I think it's this act of unplugging. It's this act of, of trying to get back to simpler ways and trying to get back to simpler times. And so when we do it, the whole point is to make things simple. And what we do is we make it so stinking complicated. Like sometimes setting up a camper takes three, four hours. Like that's not simple. What? It's worth it. Setting up the camper is worth it. <laughs> But you have a house, Wendy. <laughs> it's already set up. You don't have to crank anything or, or, or set up beds or anything. It, it, it just blows my mind at the extent we go to to be simple, to get back to simplicity, to find that out. And I think the reason why is that we all acknowledge the fact that our lives are just riddled with distractions. Like there is so much going on Monday through Friday or Monday through Sunday or even Sunday morning and we just get bombarded with all of this stuff that our eyes are continuously bobbing around and we notice every little thing and it's hard to stay focused. I, this is the first year ever, I think, in my ministry 
where I have done a series all the way through, more than once. I mean, uh, usually five weeks for me, that's a commitment. <laughs> Trying to stick with a series for five weeks is nuts. Well, the, just a uh, day, couple days ago, I actually lined out our sermon series until January. Yeah! <laughs> we'll see if it actually happens. But next, next week, we're starting a brand new series that I'm really excited about. It's called The Pillars of Faith. And we're going we're gonna to look at Hebrews 11 and what all that means and what it looks like to look back on the people that motivate us to get where we're going. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, come back for that. We've got, we've got a, really, a lot of really cool series coming up. Um, and, and September 22nd is going to be the best one because our, my boss will be here. So it has to be. Uh, you know, hopefully we'll be dedicating the building on that day, and, uh, and, and Steve Scott will be here. But it, it, we've got a lot of just great stuff coming up. And, and, and when I was doing that, I noticed how much when I opened up my calendar, the little red dots, they totally, I was just trying to figure out what the next Sunday date was. But then I'd see a red dot and I'd open it up. What's that? What's going on here? Oh, Oh, what's going on here? I just get distractions everywhere. And so we try to unplug. We try to get undistracted because we want to focus on God. Well, for the first time in my career, I believe I actually have a tweetable phrase. I've always, you know, there's these pastors that are just creative and smart, and, and, and they have these things, and, and then you read on Sunday afternoon on your Facebook feed or on your Twitter feed, and they, they, they tweet out these one-liners that their pastor gave. I've never been that smart. So... I've never really had the tweetable phrase, but today I think I have one. I'm going to tell you, settle down. I'm, I'm building here. I'm glad it's working. The anticipation is killing you. I, I think I discovered something that shapes our, our, okay, here, I paid like a lot of money for this word, so I'm going to use it, Christology, right? It's our, it's our theology about Jesus. And today's scripture focuses on this idea, this idea of window theology. Think that's funny? <laughs> window, window theology is the way that we should be living our lives in Christianity. Its, it's opposite would be mere theology. So what happens when you have window theology is you're constantly looking out. Right? We, we see things. Now the ironic thing is most churches don't have windows. And this building is even more so. This, this building is fortified. There is one window in this entire building, and it's right above a door. That's it. No windows, except for the glass doors. But this window theology, it gets you focused on what's outside of who you are. Mirror theology, when you look in a mirror, but you, don't, you know this. When you look in a mirror, what do you see? Myself. You, right? And for some of you, you should look at windows, because no one wants to... Anyway, we, we, we have this idea, though, that we get so focused on who we are that we lose track of everything because we have this mere theology. Our, our entire theology is based on what I can do or what I can get instead of what's out there and what I need to give, what, what I need to do to approach and be in the outside and do all that kind of stuff. So this idea of window theology really piqued my interest so much so that um, I just went away with what we were supposed to do today. And Jess went ahead and made the bulletins, and I just changed it. So uh, we're actually not going to be using the scripture that's on your bulletin. We're actually going to be in Luke chapter 12. Um, but it's, it's this idea that Jesus is calling us away from distractions, but still letting us focus on what's out there. Okay, so in the scripture today, it's Luke chapter 12. 
we've got this pretty common occurrence taking place. This, this guy is going to go to Jesus, which was very common. People would go to their rabbi and, and give the rabbi a problem to solve, and the rabbi would solve the problem. So what's going on here is pretty normal. And so this guy comes up to Jesus and says, hey, my brother and I, we have this inheritance. Can you tell us who gets what? It's not fair. We don't like it. Who, who's going who's gonna to get the inheritance? And so Jesus says, no, I can't. It's like this idea that Jesus is not going to get involved in their money. They've they got their own issues. Well, just here. Chapter, uh, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Obviously a younger brother, right? Tell the older brother to divide the inheritance. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in abundance of his possessions. Okay. I want to share with you something of this scripture that I've learned recently. Like recently being like 10 years. If you are living your life for an inheritance, you're doing something wrong. Because I'm going to tell you right now, those people that are supposed to leave you money, they should be spending the money on themselves. It's not yours, right? So, so why do we, 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 we have this idea and this mindset today that something is owed to us. I just read a study the other day that said that the, the, the number one thing that is separating millennials from every other generation, sorry, we're going to pick on millennials again, <laughs> is that there's this idea that, that someone, like it, it's, it's an obligation to come up with 20% to buy a house for the parents for the millennial. This is something they just think should happen. This is why they live in the basement, because parents don't agree, right? And there's this, we have this huge sense of, and this is where I think it comes from. I don't think it's a negative thing. I think our entitlement comes from anxiety. I think that we have this nervousness that something is not going to work or not going to happen, and then you add that to this idea that, well, our parents have this kind of house. Why don't I have this kind of house? I should have that. But we don't, we don't ever think about the fact that, well, our parents didn't have that kind of house when they were our age. They, they worked for that. There's a, there's a lawyer in Southern California, he's Bob Goff. He's an author. He writes phenomenal books. If you haven't read his books, you should get them. And he, and he says, in, in his most recent book, he says that the thing about Bob Goff is this. And you know he's cool because he can refer to himself in third person. And it doesn't seem weird. The thing about Bob Goff is this. People always want to be Bob Goff now. But nobody wants to be Bob Goff 40 years ago when Bob Goff was sitting in the reception area of a law school because he didn't get accepted, and he just went there and sat every day for a semester and a half until he wore down the dean and he got accepted into law school. Nobody wants to be that Bob Goff. They want to be the Bob Goff that is this ambassador to Uganda and freeing these kids and taking on witch doctors. That Bob Goff is cool. The Bob Goff has an office in Disneyland. This is where his law office is. It's at Tom Sawyer's Island. There's a bench, like a picnic table. He literally buys his clients a ticket to get into Disneyland to meet. Everyone wants to be that Bob Goff, but nobody wants to be the Bob Goff that was just getting rejection letter after rejection letter and having to beat down doors and having to get everywhere. So what we do is we build up this stuff and it just creates this anxiety and then the anxiety leads to this entitlement. Why don't we have this? We should have this. It's not fair that we don't have this. Wham. 
and all of a sudden it becomes the mantra that we live by and we just get stuck in this idea of wanting stuff that we don't have, wanting more than our share, wanting what we never have deserved, and then it gets to the point with, how dare my parents not leave me a fortune? It's not your fortune anyway. It, 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 was, it, was, never, it was never any of these brothers' money. They, they come and they say, Jesus, my brother won't share with me. And, and I'm pretty sure Jesus wanted to spank him. But there was probably some scribes around, so we had to just put them in timeout so there was no like, lawsuit or anything. He just says, who, who am I? What, what's your deal? I don't care. You, in fact, you two are so distracted about this money that you're coming to me, the savior of the world, and asking me to be an arbiter. Do you get that? That's like going to a Supreme Court justice and saying, hey, can you argue my parking ticket for me in civil court? It's mind-blowing that you would come to Jesus, the one that's already, by this time in Luke, we've already been healed. There's been healings. There's been crazy stuff going on. And they're going to, Jesus, my brother, he's not sharing. And I really feel like you should bring the thunder down on him. It's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. He just says, look, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So he begins with this actual warning of thing going on. And then Jesus does what Jesus does. I'm going to elaborate. But I'm going to do it through a story. So then he tells this parable in verse 16. And he told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to... Could you, just for a second, put yourself in the place of these two brothers, right? So they just came and they asked Jesus. Jesus says, get over yourselves, quit being greedy. And then he says, let me tell you a story. How uncomfortable is it for those two brothers? Because they're still standing there, right? And now they're, they're going to listen. Oh, good, a story. Oh, wait, is this about us? <laughs> listen, Jesus. He says, and he told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all of my grain and all of my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many, many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have put, prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Window theology, mere theology. This is not a condemnation on money. It is not a condemnation on wealth. Jesus does not imply here at all that this man was an extortionist or that he abused his employees or anything like that. It was just, this is a story about great abundance and what do you do with it? When you live a life of mere theology like this rich fool does, you, you have this idea that everything is mine and it's here because of what I did. It, it, I, I provided this. I did it. You notice this is one of these crazy, um, it's almost a soliloquy more than anything. But there's in this very, this very small passage where Jesus tells this parable, 11 times I, my, or mine. 11 times. Coop used to have a phrase that he would say all the time. He'd say that some people's eyes are too close together. And he didn't mean their eyes. He meant when they talk, their eyes. I this, I, me, 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 me. Their eyes are too close together. This man's eyes are too close together. 
Everything is not just about his, what he's going to do with it, but everything is how he provided it. My land did this. There's never even an acknowledgement that possibly God had something to do with this blessing. So this is not so much a, 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 a parable about having too much money. This is a parable about being distracted by things that don't matter and not being grateful for what you've been given. So what he does is he says, I've got all this stuff. All of my barns are full. Some of us at that point would be like, I should probably start giving some of this away. Or even better, I'm going to throw a giant party. So at least that way you still get to benefit from it too, right? All my abundance, I'm going to share that somehow with somebody. But that's not what he does. He tears down his small barns so that he can build bigger barns so that he can store everything up. Now, it does, when it says that God demanded his life, that doesn't mean that God said, you know what, since you're done, I'm going to kill you. That'll show you. Uh, I need a really good way to hammer this point home. So uh, tonight, you're just going to die. What happens here is that God knows that his, this is his last day. So he says, what good does that do? You know, there's, there's something that they, uh, whenever you go through any kind of like suicide prevention training or anything like that, they, they tell you the number one thing to look for is when people start giving away possessions. When, when people start getting rid of stuff like oddly and weirdly just out of nowhere, um, it's one of those signs you need to start looking at, okay, why are you giving everything away? This past year has been a rough year in the fact that in the way that um, I've, I've journeyed with three close friends as they were passing. And every, all three of those people, just before, were given everything away. Because they don't need it. They, 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 there's something that triggers inside your mind that says, I'm not going to need this bike anymore. I should probably give it to somebody. I'm not going to need And they start, they start giving everything away because something triggers in your mind that you don't need that stuff anymore. And it's not bad to store things up. It's, it's not bad to prepare for the future. It's not bad to do these things. We, we have a story of when God actually tells Joseph to tell Pharaoh, store up in the good years so in the bleak years you'll have plenty of food to feed your country. But here's the difference. When Joseph told Pharaoh that, it was an instruction by God. So there was an acknowledgement that God is the one that is in charge and sovereign rather than this man that says, man, I just don't have big enough barns. And I have so much stuff, I'm just going to tear down. Can, can you, like... What did he do? Did he like move the grain out, tear down the barns, and then build new ones and move the grain back in? That just seems ridiculous to me. The whole thing is just bizarre. And so he builds these giant things to hold his abundance. The big thing here is that there's this, we, we have this fancy church word called stewardship, right? We are stewards of things. We are stewards of our bodies. We're stewards of the earth. We're stewards of the money. What that means is we're managers. And so when we, when we have our connecting time and we receive tithes and offerings and we say things like, this is a way that we respond back to what God has given us by giving back to him some, that's stewardship, right? We, 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 we acknowledge that God has given to us and our response to that is to give back some of that. Stewardship. Well, stewardship has two things that kind of work together. Stewardship, it only works is if you give to God and give to neighbor. That, those, are the, those are the aspects of stewardship. And so we honestly, when, when we say this, and some people cringe, that if you can't do like 2 Corinthians 9 says and give with a joyful heart, then we would please ask you not to give. Because here's the bottom line. We are not collecting money to pay the utility bill. We, we are literally collecting money 
to pay rent for someone that can't pay rent or to buy groceries for someone that can't buy groceries or to get someone through the rest of the month. This is what our offering, yes and yes, we do pay a mortgage and we do pay the light bill and we do pay these things. But that's not why we, I mean, those are such a small portion of what we do. What we want to do with our offerings is be able to give that to God and give it to neighbor. Those are the access to stewardship that we want to participate in. This guy, the reason why he gets called a fool, he doesn't get that at all. The aspects of stewardship for him is it's mine. When I look in a mirror, all I see is me. I've done this. I've worked hard. I bought this land. All this stuff is mine. That's it. It's all mine. There's no one else involved in this. Um, we get two things that stand out about this guy. The first thing is this. He cannot possibly see beyond himself. He only sees it's right in front of him. His needs. What he's going to do. Everything that happens, the mine, mine, mine. This, is, this phrase, this pronoun of mine, I, myself, all those, they're called aggressive pronouns. And I think it fits beautifully, right? Because it's this, this idea that you're grabbing from something. This is mine. It, it's uh, every, every cartoon that has a baby in it. What's the biggest laugh? Mine, 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 mine. You know, the seagulls from Finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. You know, we, we, we have this idea. We all understand it. And we all call it selfish, we call it greedy, and we do it. But then we go home and we look in our mirror and go, you know what? It's right. Mine. This stuff is mine. I can't possibly. What I'm, I'm going to do is I'm going to build a bigger storehouse because I, I don't want this stuff to go away. I've got to keep my hands on this. John Wesley was a um, preacher, a theologian. He's, he's what we've, our entire doctrine is based on his theology. And, and, and John Wesley he had a rule in his life that um, he would save all he could and give the rest away. That was, his, that was the way he lived. So when he was in Oxford and he had an income of 30 pounds a year, he lived on 28 and gave two away. This is what he did. And then when, when he got his income increased and he had 60 pounds, 90 pounds, 120 a year, he still lived on 28 pounds and gave the rest away. Rick Warren, a pastor, even you know, a little more current in Southern California, Rick Warren wrote a book and he talks about how he does reverse tithing. Rick Warren gives 90% of his income away and lives on 10%. It's kind of a brilliant thing and it's a brilliant concept except for the fact that we are pitched this new idea. Here's a new idea. When you succeed, you should look more successful. So what that means is when you get a raise, you should spend it all. When you, when, you, when you sell a house, you should buy a bigger house. I, I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day, and, and I never really thought about it this way before, but the, this trap of buying bigger, and we have these things called starter homes, and, and, and we all do it. I mean, it's, that, that's the American way, right? We, we buy a starter home, and then we upgrade, we upgrade, we upgrade. But the funny thing is, is most people live in an average of 10 to 15 years in a house. And, and so by the time you're ready to sell your house and upgrade, you're now paying principal finally for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you've reset to just pay interest again. And, and it, but it's this idea that what we've, we've got to, you know? You look back in the 50s and the 40s, the average house was 900 square feet. Even in America, 900 square feet. You want to know why we only need one income? Because the house is only 900 square feet. But now, now you know what we need? 7,200 square feet for crying out loud. Because my wife and I, we need some space. I drive, I drive an SUV with three rows of seating. Usually it's just me in the car. 
We, we, we just, we, we have this idea of keep reaching, keep reaching, keep reaching. And here's the thing. If you can keep reaching and stay in the means where you should be at, keep reaching. But what we do is we stretch ourselves way too thin. And then what happens is when, you, when God calls you to give, you're like, I can't. I don't, I don't have any to give. Or when, a, when your kid wants to go to camp, and this, this happened in Chico all the time. Camp season would come along. They, parents would be like, we can't afford camp. We can't afford that. It, it's like 300 bucks. I can't afford that. And I'm looking, I'm going, you just spent 1,500 bucks for your kid to go to football camp. You can afford it. You're just affording other things instead. So a lot of times it's just priorities and not so much what you have. It's what you're doing with it, distractions. So we have to figure out this balance. Because having things is not, a, it's not bad. If you can have and still be generous, which uh, this is a way, when I was preparing this, this is just the lectionary gospel for, 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 this, uh, for this week. I'm preparing this going, knowing full well that if either one of the missionaries that we support were here, they would stand up and go, JJ, why are you talking to this church about this? Because like you know, when Lou came, Lou, Lou spoke at churches in Portland that were 10 times our size, 20 times our size, and they didn't even take a love offering. And she spoke at our church and left with several thousand dollars. And she just blew her mind. It absolutely blew her mind. And the same thing with the Carlstroms. When they come and they just feel, they don't just feel love from us and support from us, but we want to fund what they're doing. We want to back what they're doing. And you guys are incredible with that. There is no reason. There is no way humanly possible. This is where the rich fool got it wrong. This is window theology. There is no way possible that we should have been able to raise our down payment as a church our size. Shouldn't happen. There, there should have been no way we could have done that. And so the important thing is that we look out the window and go, this is not just us that's doing that. There are forces beyond us. And it's because people have chosen to simplify and live within their means so that when they're called, by, not by me to give, but when they're called by God to give, they respond by giving. They respond by doing something and giving that gift. This man had no intention of ever doing that. The Romans have a proverb that says money is like seawater. The more that you drink, the thirstier you get. And so many times, like that's how we are, right? We, we, the, the, if we just have, we keep pursuing. The more money we get, the more we want. The more we need because we up our lifestyle. I, I, just, I, I think that something would be so cool if we all just stepped back and went, what if we were just simple people? Like, I, I, I have the hardest time right now when I think to myself that we are a family of two drivers right now. And technically, we own four cars. You're not a driver. You need, you, you, we have two and a half drivers. We have two and a half drivers and four cars. That's bizarre. Like, why, why do I possibly need to have a Jeep? Well, I know why I need a Jeep. What? <laughs> Let me rephrase that. Why do we need a Honda Pilot? You know why? To pull the trailer. So we got a trailer. Now we need a car to pull the trailer. And, and this is what we do. We just pile on, pile on, pile on. And, it, it, we just, and all of a sudden it becomes so overwhelming that we just get lost in our distractions. And we forget that, one, God has blessed us with abundance. And the fact that we have abundance means, just like Abraham is called to do, you are blessed to be a blessing. And I'm not saying that if you have lots of money, you should give more starting right now. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if you were blessed with abundance, you should be attuned to when God calls you to give because he's not always going to. 
He may call you to give to something and not something else, and that's fine. And it, it, but the, the bottom line is we need to be available to do that when God asks us to do it. We need to be able to write that check because we've left room in our lives for God to move. We need to be prepared to support a missionary, to adopt a child in Uganda, to do whatever we got to, if God is moving and stirring in your heart. It's not about, hey, today I want you to start tithing more. It's not about that. What it's about is being obedient to the fact when God calls us to do things. The other thing about this guy is that he never saw beyond this world. That's a big one. He never saw beyond himself because he was always looking in a mirror. But he also never saw beyond this world. We, we pray this prayer in Matthew that says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer is about seeing beyond our world. We're asking for this kingdom to come onto earth, to, to be part, to mingle in, to be what we do. We are wanting the kingdom here. We're seeing beyond our world. We're doing more than our world. We're trying to get past that part. This man in the parable, he was so self-centered that he couldn't see what he considered to be his harvest, what, what he did, his barns, his own life, when really the sovereignty belonged to God. And God said, by the way, I love what you're doing with this place, but tonight you're going to die and none of it is going with you. None of it. What you could have done is you could have invested that into a next generation. You, you, you could have seen what it could do for people coming up. You could have, and, and not, not just in an inheritance. Listen, inheritance is fine. But you know what I'd rather do? I'd rather go on a trip with those people that I love. Not, not, not spend their money in their name. That, that, to me, that's ridiculous. I, I would rather enjoy it. So if this man would have just saw past this world and saw an eternity saw something bigger than himself. He could have done so much more with his abundance than just save it. There's a story of a man who goes and seeks out a wiser man. And the wise man says, uh, so um, what are you going to do for this kid? And he says, well, I guess I'm going to stay in school and get good grades. And the man says, and then? He says, well, then I'll go to college and, and major in something. And he said, and then? Well, then I'll get a job and and uh, I'll make money, and, and then? Well, and, and I'll stay at that job and get a pension, and then? Well, I'll retire, and uh, I'll get to have a lot of fun, and then? Well, I, I, guess, I guess then I die, and then? And it's this mindset of looking beyond where we are. There is so much going on in this world that can be so distracting that we forget. We are but visitors here. We are aliens in this world. This is not our home. And we easily get bogged down. And look, it's real stuff that's distracting. It's, it's shootings that are happening all over our nation right now, this week. It's, it's easily be distracted by these things because they're real. It's a hostage crisis right down the street from Matt's house in our own town. There's, there's real things. But the bottom line is this, that we serve and worship today. I want to go to church. Why? Because I want to acknowledge that God is sovereign and in control. Even in the midst of the chaos, God is sovereign and in control. I want to be able to give that sovereignty back to him. I want to not take my circumstances and look in the mirror and say, me, 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 my circumstances. But I want to look at God and say, your sovereignty. How can I move in this? How can I be a part of this? What can I do that will last? I don't want to look just to this world because this world will pass away. It will perish. Every single thing on this earth is not permanent. And I want to focus on permanent things. 
It's why it, it's, so, it, it's so hard to be in this place of building a building or remodeling a building or acquiring a building because my whole focus is on things. And I don't want it to be. I want it to be what this building represents. I want it to be something about eternity. I want it to be next level things. I don't want to get bogged down by little things. I want simplicity. The issue in this parable is not money. The issue in this parable is focus on not being distracted. Not letting things distract you. Like bigger barns. Like bigger buildings. Like weeds in the parking lot. Like a door that drives me crazy. Like fake rock <laughs> behind a fireplace. You know, just the stuff that is all around us and we just get bogged down by it and we just get so distracted that we cannot focus anymore on what's important. And what's important is acknowledging with gratitude that the abundance that we have comes from one source and that's God. And we have to, re we, we have to just be that way. The word simplicity, when you look at the Latin root of that, the, the plexity, the plicity part, it means to fold. Plicity means to fold. So when you look at the word duplicity, it means to fold once. So you have two folds, right? You have two halves. So duplicity means to fold. Complicity or complexity, the word plex is actually fold. Complexity means to fold many, many times. And the more complexity that we have in our lives, the more folds we have. And have you ever got, like, when you were, like, in high school, this was, um, just so you know, we didn't always have cell phones. So you had to, like, you had to, like, write notes. Um, and and uh, you had to, like, write what you wanted to on the note, and then you would pass that to a friend. And then, oh, you know about notes? Well, then you know that you can't let teachers find your notes, right? You want to know why? Let's ask Megan. Megan, what do you do when you find a note? You read it! Teacher's greatest joy in the world is reading kids' notes. So what happened? Okay, okay, you're done. Your, your, part, your part is over. It's my part again. Teachers love to grab those. So then what happened, and this was invented by girls because they're more creative than boys. They started to fold these notes in these crazy intricate finger trap things that no one could figure out how to open. And, but only the other people they were passing it to knew the combination or whatever. And you just pulled one thing and they all just came unraveled. But the problem is, the more folds you have in something, the harder it is to operate. Have you ever tried to read a note with the, it just creased right on a word and you've lost it? Or you folded a note yourself and the ink didn't dry? Open it up and you're like, oh. Sometimes I'm in a hurry. Like, I got to get that out, you know. The more you fold, the more complex everything gets. The more complex everything is, the harder it is to live. Simplicity means this. The Latin form means simple fold, no fold. Zero folds. So when you have this simple life, there is nothing that is in the way of reading it. There's nothing that gets in the way from you looking out and going, praise God for the blessings that have been upon me. And that's not saying... Praise God for my big house or all my bills are paid. That's saying, praise God the sun came up today. Praise God that I can stand up and walk outside. Praise God that it hasn't been 100 degrees yet this summer. <laughs> I forgot we had Phoenix people here today. <laughs> they say, praise God it didn't get 100 degrees in February this year. 
to be able to look at the simple things and just go, this is all from God. All of it. When your kids poke you in the face at 6 in the morning to wake you up, praise God. Praise, praise God that, you live in a, that you're alive and get to experience this stuff. Even like on Friday night, I went to a barbecue where I said goodbye to a very good friend. He's going to move to hell, basically, Arkansas. <laughs> but I mean, it's like we got to gather together and praise God for that. Praise God that we got to say goodbye to them and send them off in a good way. It's just so good. We're sitting in a three-hour meeting with the planning, four-hour meeting, I don't know, super long, with the planning commission. But praise God that we were even before that committee. Praise God that we were the only unanimous yes vote the entire night. Praise God that they said, the commissioners said, I cannot wait to vote yes on this. Uh, uh, praise God for stuff like that. that. That we've been waiting since November and it's easy to get bogged down. But wait, stop. No, praise God. Not, not it's been since November, but praise God it's right now. And we need to be able to look out the window and go, there is so much bigger stuff going on right now than just this. Many American families are trying to, well, many families around the world are doing this thing where they're trying to recover their joy. You know what one of the most popular podcasts on Apple Podcast is? No, it's not Connected NAS. It's the minimalists. There's these two guys that are called the minimalists. And what they decided a few years ago was their life was too complicated with stuff. And it was that whole drinking the salt water and being thirsty. They kept getting promotion after promotion and they would look in the garage and this single dude had like three cars, a huge apartment, and he was alone. So he sold it all. And, and they, they have this podcast now that you can listen to and it's, it's mind-blowing. Do, do you know that the, the appeal right now is so strong for people to live in tiny houses that counties around the nation are outlawing them? Because it kills the economy. They, the system needs us to constantly upgrade. And so when we say, you know what, we're just going to live in 900 square feet, they're like, yeah, we're going to make that illegal. Do you know you cannot build a house in Carson under 900 square feet? Unless you have a special use permit. <laughs> I know who to call for that. We, but but there's, this, there's this return back to simplicity, and I think that's what we do when we go camping. It's this need to get back. It's why we hike. It's why we go outside. It's why we live here, right? So we can look at the mountains and go, man, that was a simpler time. And don't get me wrong. I want to go back to live in like pioneer times because, yes, it was simple, but that was the hardest simple ever. I like to be able to go to the store and buy butter. I don't have to churn butter. We must not strive to see different things out the window. We must not look out the window and go, oh man, why can't things be different? What we have to do is window theology is this, not striving to see different things, but striving to see things differently. And so we are blown away by everything that's going on right now. If this man would have just had some window theology, his focus would have been out instead of in. Everything would have changed. So the question is throughout this, can we be a church that is not focused on a building? Can we be a church that is focused on our neighborhood? Can we be a church that is focused on the streets that go around here? The people, you know, we had one letter written to the planning commission. Uh, that is it. There was no complaints. There was one letter submitted. And it was a man that lives around here. And he said, I own a house and I live in the house. And I can't think of anything better to go in that property than a church. And he went on to list two reasons why. 
fantastic. That guy we need to be going to and loving and showing him what a church does. I don't know. I have his phone number. Let's go right now. Come on. I imagine we did give him candy at our reverse trick-or-treating thing. Yeah, he probably didn't answer. My word, this is a rowdy crowd today. I'm going to close. We have got to be a church that looks outside. Even in the midst of being bogged down by everything that's going to be happening, being bogged down by the, the anticipation for our new sanctuary, being bogged down by the remodel, being bogged down by this, being bogged down by that, being bogged down by writing checks, being bogged down, we need to be a church that's not focused on this place. This place is just simply a place where we gather so that we can go. That's it. We need to be looking at our world through a window always. It'd be so easy right now for the next month or two to just have a mirror in front of our face and we just miss everything that's going on around us because we refuse to look at it. We're going to move into connecting time right now. The band's going to come back up. Jess is going to give you some uh, prompts, instructions on uh, what we have going on. You know, you know what I'm most excited about, honestly, about being back in the sanctuary? And this is a weird thing because I mocked him from the beginning of my Nazarendom to now. I am so looking forward to having altars again. Like, and that, it just, it's a weird thing. I mean, when you, when you go to college in Texas or Oklahoma and you're at a Nazarene church or just when you're at a Nazarene church there, they, their altars are like, um, it's more important than anything in the whole world. Like, I, I remember the first time I ever sat on an altar in Oklahoma and I, I thought I was going to get beat. They're like, you better go get a switch because you don't, and then like you see people stand on them and it's like, I, I just, I, I, that part of connecting time I miss. And those are the things that I want to be distracted with because that's eternal. I want to have a place where I can just fall on my face again right before God. And so connecting time has that one more element of just complete surrender. Pastor Jess is going to give us uh, just some, some ideas on how to connect right now. So we really do 